Welcome, everyone. We can go ahead and get started. Thanks for being here, and uh, I trust you all know at this point about the handouts in the back, but in case you didn't, we have those handouts on the way in that will help you track with our class, and um, so if you haven't got one of those, make sure to get one. Um, welcome to our 10th and final installment of this series on the Holy Spirit. I'm going to start us off with prayer and then kind of introduce a roadmap of where we're going today. Our Father in heaven, we praise you for your works of salvation and providence and especially redemption in Christ. We thank you that as a church, we get to belong to you through Jesus in union with Christ to be uh, assured of salvation, to be forgiven of sin, to be made heirs of eternal glory in Christ. And we thank you that no small part of this gift is your Holy Spirit uh, poured out on us at conversion and leading us toward holiness and filling us with the fellowship, the experience of knowing you as our God and the enjoyment of you as our God now into all eternity. We thank you for the things we've gotten to see from your word about your spirit over these last couple of months. And we pray that as we wrap up the series that it would, uh, today's uh, time would be clear and faithful to your word, that it would wrap up any kind of loose ends that need to be wrapped up, that it would be helpful review and that as we engage some question and answer, that that too would just be helpful for, for teasing out uh, some really good and, and sometimes sticky issues. And please, we pray that we'd be mature in our thinking and in our walking, that we would walk worthy of the gospel, that we would more and more be people who enjoy and uh, walk in step with your spirit. Be glorified in, in our midst, in our hearing now and in our lives moving forward from here. In Jesus' name, amen. So what we're going to do today is first a kind of a flyover survey of all we've covered in the last nine lessons, um, just to kind of review and get us all refreshed on what we covered. And then I'm going to draw out just three sort of high-level, big-picture takeaways, three things I kind of hope that we all come away from this series, especially impressed by, about the Holy Spirit. And then um, I did solicit some questions from you um, last week, and thankfully I got several, and all the ones I got were good. Um, I wasn't quite able to uh, handle every single one, but um, most of them we are going to tackle and at least give some answer. I can never say the, the comprehensive answer that could ever be given, but any answer, hopefully that's helpful for the, the questions that we received on the Holy Spirit. Um, and of course, this isn't the end of the conversation with one another and with me, um, just because the series is over doesn't mean you can't email me questions about the Holy Spirit. Um, I would love to keep interacting with you over, about those things. But so uh, first thing we want to do is just walk through the course and, and give a little bit of review for everything we covered. So maybe you've been here every single time. Maybe you've missed a few. Maybe this is your first time in this series being here. Uh, whatever the case, hopefully this is somewhat helpful for getting us refreshed and up to speed. So the first week was our introduction, and we began at the very beginning by searching ourselves with some questions about where we stand with the doctrine of the Holy Spirit and the person of the Holy Spirit. So I asked, do you know him? Do you know the Holy Spirit? Uh, what would it be like if you lost him, if you didn't have the Holy Spirit anymore? Not that that can happen for us as Christians, but what if you lost the Holy Spirit? And then I asked, I laid out this scenario Imagining some, someone, a church member, asks you or says to you, what our church needs is more of the Holy Spirit. We need a greater awareness of his presence, 
his power, and his gifts. We need to surrender ourselves more fully to his control. We need to learn him more thoroughly, trust him more fully, adore him more dearly, and long for his work more earnestly. And I, I, I said that as a sort of hypothetical scenario to you and asked, what do you think about that? Do you fully agree with it? Do you disagree? Are you nervous? Does hearing that kind of talk make you nervous? Do you wonder, what do you mean by that? Are you making certain assumptions about what, what, what unstated things they might be uh, alluding to? And uh, by the way, hearing that again, I wonder, does any, uh, and just rhetorically, you don't have to raise your hand, but I wonder if that statement sounds more agreeable to any of you than it did 10 weeks ago. Um, because again, we can, have, we can have some nervousness that we were sort of, I was trying to put my finger on, help you put your finger on, there are some, obviously, some wonderful blessings and advantages and, and uh, good things for us to get in studying the Holy Spirit. But there's also some confusion. There's hazards. There's misunderstanding. Then we tried to uh, look at kind of where we are in church history um, and some of the, the things swirling about us today with regard to thinking about the Holy Spirit um, and trying to disentangle some of these issues. So that was the first Lesson. Then the second lesson, we looked at the Holy Spirit and the Trinity. So we looked at the Holy Spirit as a divine person who is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Son. Uh, his personhood is defined by his eternal procession from the Father and the Son. And uh, we, uh, we, I've said to you several times, you may be sick of hearing it, uh, that the external works of the Trinity are undivided. Everything God does outwardly toward, uh, toward uh, his creation is something that Father, Son, and Spirit all are equally sharing, but each person has a distinct mode of operating in those works. And so the Spirit, who is the, the one who, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, is the perfecter and the life giver in all of God's works. And we even found this language from this old 4th century creed that says that the Holy Spirit is the Lord, the giver of life. Both of those are basically statements straight out of Scripture. Uh, summing up both the divine personhood and the life-giving operation of all uh, the, the Spirit's work and all that God does. And really the rest of the course has been sort of an unfolding of that, an exposition of that, both the Spirit as the Lord and life-giver. Um, class three, we looked at the, the kind of the first works, uh, the, the, the first divine works to look at were creation and providence. So we looked at the Holy Spirit's role in creation and then in providence. So the, the creation week of Genesis 1, the Spirit is hovering over the, the waters, the unformed and empty mass of heaven and earth that God is creating. And so it's by the Spirit that God brings about the order and, and filling with life that creation exhibits. What well, takes us from formless and void in Genesis 1-2 to this beautifully ordered and abundant and filled creation at the end of Genesis 1 is the Spirit bringing order and life. Um, and then in Genesis 2-7, we see that, that God breathes life into the, the human soul when God makes Adam out of, he, and he makes his body out of the, the dust, but then he breathes into him the breath of life. And we said, looking at how that echoes throughout scripture, that that seems to be a reference to the Spirit's activity just in causing man to be what we are, having a soul. Um, but then we didn't. You know, the Spirit's work didn't stop at day seven of creation, but his work continues in providence, in upholding the natural world. Uh, we looked at Psalm 104, which shows the Spirit really is the one who sustains the life of God's creatures. Uh, he, uh, he, his life-giving operations cause life to be sustained. Even all these, you know, wild creatures out in the world maybe never interact with any human being, 
but it's the spirit who is giving them life, and it's the spirit who's withdrawing life when they die. Um, and that really extends to all of God's providence. God's maintaining and, and providing for his created order. So weather, vegetation, animal life, human societies, all these things, the spirit is involved in, in ordering and giving life. Then we looked at, uh, by the way, I'm kind of going through all these in a series, and I know we went into more detail before, but any questions or thoughts about just even this, the three we've talked about so far? Okay. Yeah, I know we're going overview fashion, but does anyone have any feedback? Or? Okay. Class four, we looked at the Holy Spirit and Revelation. Uh, we looked at the divine work of God revealing his word. And again, the whole trinity, the, all of uh, the divine persons are involved in God's speech. But the spirit is the breath, we could say, that sort of carries forth the God-breathed word. That language comes out of 2 Timothy 3.16. All scriptures God-breathed. And this breath or wind language is very uh, evocative of, of the, the association with the Holy Spirit. He's the one, as we learn in first uh, in Second Peter 1, who's... Uh, who carries along the human authors and the, the human prophets when God is revealing his word. He's the one working in the minds of those people. Um, and the Holy Spirit's involvement in Revelation doesn't end with the writing of God's word because as we learned from Hebrews 4.12, the, the word of God is living and active. And uh, it's not because of some impersonal property in the word itself, but because the Holy Spirit is still saying the word today. Uh, we looked at both the connection of Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active. But then in Hebrews 3.7, the author has said, the Holy Spirit says, and then quoted from the Old Testament. So this scripture, which is written, is still the Spirit speaking. That's why the word continues to live and act. Uh, it is still God speaking in, insofar as the Spirit is still saying these things. And we also have the doctrine we looked at of illumination, where not only on the giving end of, of God's word, but the receiving end of God's word, when we hear it, the Spirit is working in our hearts to empower our hearing and to bring about open eyes spiritually to what God is saying. Then we looked at uh, class five, the Holy Spirit and God's indwelling presence. So um, in every stage of redemptive history, we kind of ask the question, where's the temple now? Where's the temple? Right? And uh, the Holy Spirit is the agent most directly responsible for God indwelling his people, the triune God living with and among his people. So way back in uh, Israel's Exodus wanderings, uh, they built this tabernacle by God's direction. And uh, the spirit was, was associated with God's presence there in the tabernacle. Then they built a temple, Solomon's temple. Uh, but then in the incarnation, he prepares, the spirit prepares a body for Christ, a, a body for the son in the womb of Mary. And Jesus's human body becomes the new temple, the place where God's spirit and God's presence dwells among his people. And then Jesus dies, and he uh, rises to life, and he ascends to heaven. And then what happens? Where does the temple go from there? The, the, we, the church, because the Holy Spirit, he pours out his spirit at Pentecost. And so the church becomes the, the temple, the, the dwelling place of God by the spirit. That's language pretty much directly out of 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17. So the spirit makes the the people of God collectively and individually in indwelling us as individuals, the temple where God's glory dwells. So again, we have this, this uh, on the one hand, all of God is, is working together. All of God is indwelling. But in another sense, we could kind of single out the spirit and say, by means of the spirit indwelling, all, the divine, all, all of God is indwelling us. Uh, we have that kind of language out of uh, John 14, for instance. And then we looked at... Um, 
starting class six, we looked at two lessons on the individual's experience of salvation. In lesson six, we, we, we looked at the moment of conversion. And then lesson seven, we looked at the whole ongoing Christian life, um, which really in, in biblical terminology, all that is lumped under the broad term of salvation, right? Salvation begins with conversion, but really the whole Christian life is the ongoing aspect of receiving that salvation. Um, in that moment of conversion, there are uh, many different distinct blessings that, that kind of break uh, over our heads in that moment of conversion, like a downpour of divine blessing. And the Spirit is the life-giving agent of all of it. He's the one who applies the benefits that Christ has won for his people. And we said, really, again, the hub of the wheel of all these blessings is uniting us to Christ. The Spirit is our union with Christ. Everything else flows from that. Uh, he brings about conviction of sin. He brings about um, new spiritual life and regeneration. He brings about faith to believe in Jesus. Um, and then we, we also see in that moment that we are converted, we move into a state of holiness uh, in our position before God. Not so much a description of our lives yet, but we become saints, like in our status, because we have the Holy Spirit and we're set apart for God. Um, and then he also uh, seals us as God's stamp of belonging. They're, these are my people. They belong to me. They're my adopted children. And, and that's supposed to lead to assurance throughout the Christian life. So leading then into the class seven, we looked at the ongoing Christian life. The whole, uh, the whole journey from conversion on through the rest of our lives, we could call this progressive sanctification or, or, or being gradually transformed into the likeness of Christ. And once again, um, the spirit is involved, and once again, the hub of the wheel is our union with Christ. And uh, whereas conversion is something that God does on us, it's a kind of a unilateral work. We, we just kind of receive it. Um, the ongoing Christian life is, is a matter of cooperation with God and his spirit. We, we have language like walking with the spirit, uh, keeping step with the spirit in Galatians 5. So we have responsibility to walk with him, to let him fill us and lead us toward holiness. And it's possible, and we're going to talk about this in the Q&A, it's possible for us to resist that and to grieve him. Um, and not only though does he change our character, but he also just draw, he draws our hearts toward God. He makes us want to worship God. He makes us enjoy communion with the triune God. He's the one who fills our hearts with assurances of the Father's love in Christ, that we've been adopted, that we've received the grace that's in Jesus. The Spirit leads us then to respond with worship in response to our salvation. Then in class eight, we, uh, for classes eight and nine, we pivoted from the individual to the corporate, the, 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 the collective people of God in our experience of the Holy Spirit. So um, really class eight was more, we kind of started with a special case with spiritual gifts, um, which are diverse ministries and abilities that the Spirit distributes among the people of Christ so that we can edify each other in Christ. That's what spiritual gifts are. And, you know, some gifts are more on the kind of the ser practical serving side. Others are more on the speaking, teaching, exhorting side. Um, some of the ones in the New Testament were miraculous. We looked at things like prophecy and speaking in languages that the person didn't study naturally um, or didn't know on their own and healings. And we considered what uh, you're all aware of, just sort of a hot debate, contemporary debate today on whether these miraculous gifts continue. And what we concluded is that while God still performs miracles, and we pray for God to do miracles, and we ought not to be closed off to the possibility that he would do a miracle, these gifts as spiritual gifts were meant for this transitional apostolic era, and they don't continue as part of the church's life. 
then in, in our last uh, lesson last week, number nine, we looked at the Holy Spirit, the church in the future. We broadened out from spiritual gifts to more generally, what is the Spirit doing in the church? And again, once again, pound that drum, it's about union with Christ as a people. We, we have our union with Christ. It's his body metaphor. We are united to Christ individually, and we're united to one another as one body in Christ. And so the main thing the Spirit does in us corporately is he is our union with Christ together. And we teased out this, what this means for our worship, our preaching and hearing of God's word, our selection of leaders, our witness to the world of Christ, and our practice of the ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper. Uh, but also the church, you know, the church is a time capsule of the future. We're, we're sort of the first, uh, first fruit of, of the kingdom of Christ to come when he returns. And, uh, and so the Spirit um, is working in the church to keep us in the hope of the coming redemption when Christ comes. And when Christ does return and he resurrects us and glorifies us, the Spirit is involved. That's a spiritual body. A, we could say kind of a spiritized body when we're resurrected with Christ. Um, and so in one sense, we could say we're made more fit to commune with God in the Spirit there in the resurrection. And we saw really that last picture out of Revelation 22 is all of eternity in the, in the eternal state is the enjoyment of the triune God. The, the, the spirit is like streams of water flowing from the Father and the Son, and by that we, we receive the, the life of God forever. So that is what we covered. Um, it was a lot. <laughs> I didn't have to come nine weeks. I just needed to come today. Uh, any any uh, thoughts or questions about all this stuff we just ripped through again in very summary uh, overview fashion? Yeah. Has electricity ever been considered? We use, yeah, we use electricity. Yeah, we use it. Um, I'm saying that every really living physical body on this planet from the beginning of time till the end of time is running on one thing, electricity, and has it been considered as a part of the spirit at all, or the soul, or anything eternal that you would want for any reason besides the flesh? I think we might need to interact after class. I think we're on a different page here, and okay. if, I'm glad to talk to you after class, but that would take us pretty far afield from where we're, what we're talking about. Thank you. All right. Well, let's draw some big picture takeaways, just some things that um, sort of, again, I hope we, we all come away from. Things that I, I found very encouraging in studying these things over the last nine weeks. And one of them is don't, don't be scared away from the Holy Spirit. We talked about some of the discomfort we might feel about, uh, again, in our day, when we start thinking about the Holy Spirit, we think controversy. We think of some really tough issues. We, we tend to view the Holy Spirit just from the lens of the miraculous, the controversial, sometimes the weird. You hear claims and you're like, what do I make of that? You know, when people start talking about the Holy Spirit, it can get odd, honestly. Um, and these questions matter, but what we try to do from the beginning is say, this is just a tiny fraction of what we need to think about. The Bible has so much uh, riches to teach us about the Holy Spirit. And um, we ought not to be uh, concerned because of some of these controversial issues and say, oh, uh, let's just not touch the Holy Spirit. We as moderns tend to feel comfortable with irrational terms, so we can say, well, all we need is really to intellectually understand the scriptures and we'll be fine. But the Bible tells us, well, we do need that, but we need much more than that. We need new spiritual life. We need the divine person of the Spirit to work in our hearts, to open our hearts to see the glory of Christ, to understand the scriptures, and to really bring us into communion with God. So we need this person, the Holy Spirit, and we ought not to 
uh, to be afraid of knowing him and studying him and saying things like, we need the Holy Spirit. Um, Secondly, it's really good to have the Holy Spirit. I hope that has come out from every single lesson as we've studied these things going, wow, we have it very good. We have it so good with the indwelling Spirit of God. This is really the, the most... Uh, direct enjoyment of all of God's gifts in Christ. Everything that Christ has won for us in his redemption, we enjoy most directly by means of the indwelling Holy Spirit. Uh, We have this biblical motif of streams of water in the desert, bringing life uh, to what was otherwise a a barren and lifeless ground. And and we know that that's our life. That's our soul without the spirit of God. Uh, And so um, I hope we've just, all of us come to go, wow, Praise God, we have the Holy Spirit. What a gift, what a gift. Uh, And then finally, the spirit in the ordinary. So, again, this is sort of referring back to that first thing a little bit. Um, We might have a natural tendency to associate the Holy Spirit with, merely with the extraordinary and the supernatural. uh, To say, oh, the Holy Spirit, it must be something weird or unusual. Um, And this might excite us, this might attract us, this might scare us off. Either way, it's a distortion. Uh, the Bible, again and again, we've seen portrays the Spirit as working in nature. So we tend to see grace and nature maybe as two separate bins. Uh, but when God's working and thinking about the, the redeeming work of God in Christ, it's really not a matter of um, grace instead of nature as much as grace renewing nature. Uh, the Spirit is completing and perfecting a new creation work of God renewing nature. So implications would be like um we talked about spiritual gifts and we some people teach on spiritual gifts like if, for something to be a spiritual gift it has to be completely disconnected from any of your natural aptitudes and abilities and that doesn't i don't see any reason why we would have to say that right the spirit often like in providence the spirit's working through the ordinary means that keep uh keep uh creation running and so it is among us we have these normally normal creaturely means that god uses by the spirit to sustain our spiritual life. I just think about what we do. What, what does it take for a Christian to grow and to be healthy as a Christian? They're, they're very normal, ordinary means, right? Uh, we hear the word of Christ. We hear the gospel preached. We hear the scriptures. Uh, how, do we, how are we sanctified? Well, again, we hear the word of Christ. We behold him by faith, and we're transformed into his likeness. So we have things like sermons and hearing the Bible read you know, corporately and reading it individually. We have water in our baptism. We have the bread and the cup, uh, your daily prayers. These are just ordinary creaturely materials that the Holy Spirit really does use to bring about eternal impact, to do spiritual things invisibly and to make them fruitful, uh, really to, to, to bringing about faith and nourishing faith. So we ought not to have this, this strong division between, the, between uh, ordinary and, and natural things and then the spirit like he's on some other plane he's working in the ordinary does that make sense any any questions or thoughts so uh all kinds of implications that could come out of that but any uh interaction with those three big points or any other big picture points that you came away from this series with yeah christina um repentance there's a like in the process of confessing our sins, he is faithful to forgive and to cleanse, and like that transformation part of it all. Uh-huh. Like um, that's something that I like. I, I know that I, I kind of joke of it as our superpower. Like mm-hmm. repentance is our superpower. Oh, wow. there. But um, but I think that there is something like 
mystical in the process of forgiveness and transformation mm -hmm. and the cleansiness of righteousness that that comes from that confession that is not of ourselves but is of the spirit is that a mm -hmm. yeah confession of sin and repentance it is of the spirit absolutely it, it's and and in the christian life it's a matter of us cooperating with the spirit he is leading us that way and you're kind of anticipating a little bit of that grieving the spirit you know this idea of we 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 have a responsibility to follow his lead toward these things. But yeah, I mean, we often feel, I mean, we, we, we may not even think about it in these terms, but the spiritual battle often, the, the front that that's fought on is that willingness to confess sin, right? You can feel that war, like even inside ourselves of like, I don't want to give this up. I don't want to soften myself. But that the spirit is involved in that. That's a, a major front in, in the spiritual wars is being willing to have a humility over sin, confess it and repent. But he is working in us, in our hearts, toward that. Does that somewhat respond to what you Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Paul. I got an A and a B. Okay. Uh, question A was, at what point of conversion does the Holy Spirit step in? And what, uh, in John 3, when Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, who was a Pharisee, did Nicodemus have the Holy Spirit? We know what happened at the end of John, mm -hmm. at, the, at, at, uh, at the cross. But did Nicodemus have the Holy Spirit when he was... Because Jesus was talking about the wind and everything. Yeah. But more about part A, about conversion. Does the Holy Spirit step in immediately mm -hmm. to change somebody, change somebody's heart, or does he come in a little bit later? Yeah. When does the Holy Spirit step in in the conversion process? Well, the, there's no good thing that's going to come from the Word in someone's life other than the Spirit producing it. But, um, it, you know in our individual experiences. So in one sense, you know, regeneration is instant. Always, right? But in our, in our experience, there can be so much diversity of like, how many times did we have to hear the gospel? And how, you know, all the wrestling that's going on. It's really hard for us to know, you know, I would say in one sense, the Spirit is talking to you when you're hearing the, the gospel, right? In a more objective way. Uh, and, and some, I think he's, you know, he doesn't give any more than that. But, but then... He's, there's just maybe this conviction, this striving, this wrestling that might might go on for a while. But the moment of, of regeneration is instantaneous, yeah. A non-believer person hears the God, comes to church, hears the gospel four or five times. Yeah. That's still the Holy, even though they're not converted, that's still the Holy Spirit working in. Is he working in that? Yeah, well, I would say he's definitely working in an objective sense of he's talking to them in the in the word. Okay, so that's like the Hebrews 3, he says. But in terms of the subjective response, I would say it's kind of, it's hard for us to see other than the final product of like when someone does, is saved. It's like, wow, it looks like God was working on them, right? We, we, but I don't know what he's doing in any individual moment. There's mystery and in what's he doing in each individual heart in, in any moment. Even the person themselves doesn't know, right? Um, but yeah, we maybe look in hindsight and someone could say, oh, I started feeling this, you know, draw toward kind of being convicted of my sin and it took months or whatever. That kind of thing can happen, yeah. And Nicodemus, yeah, uh, toward the, at the end of John, there seems to be some signal of faith uh, in that he, he's the one who prepares Jesus' body for burial. By, in the beginning, we first meet him in John 3. He's totally confused at what Jesus is saying. He doesn't seem to be, uh, he doesn't seem to have the Holy Spirit's illuminating uh, work uh, of helping him to understand Jesus' words. That's kind of, he's representing kind of the natural man in his inability to understand Jesus' words. And he's, he's operating on the wrong level. Mm -hmm. uh, the Pharisees in general, we read through the, the gospel, the Pharisees in general, did they have 
Did they understand the Holy Spirit? Did the, the Pharisees understand the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? I don't know. I couldn't tell you. In general, yeah, I don't know. Really, I don't know what kind of theologically what they would have thought about the Spirit of God. I don't think by the end of the Old Testament, in what had been revealed so far, it was yet clear enough that they would be that they would have confessed the Spirit as a as a distinct person. This idea of of plurality of persons of, of deity. It really, it, it, it's not really until the experience of Jesus's incarnation and then the outpouring of the Spirit, the actual events of salvation, that the church has to look at that and go, "What do we do with that?" And we end up formulating the Trinity. <laughs> um, but they, these things are hinted in the Old Testament. They weren't clear enough to have that kind of doctrinally. So I don't. I think they would have said the Spirit is just God operating in some sense. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's uh, move on to some some of these. Uh, Q&A, some of these really good questions that we got. Um, I got two different questions about Ephesians 4.30 that were very similar. One person asked, um, can you talk a little bit about subtle ways that we might grieve the Holy Spirit? Um, so we talked about, let, let's, maybe I'll turn there. This will be a place we camp for a few minutes. Ephesians 4.30. Um, Someone says, you know, what are some ways that we might, that we might grieve him? Even some, some subtle ways that we, we don't normally think of. Someone else just asked for clarity on the meaning and application of this verse. So I, I, we will camp there a bit. Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Um, we turned here a number of times because there's a lot going on here. I mean, there, this is one of the proofs of his personhood, right? He's not an impersonal force. He, he's, he can be spoken of as, as being grieved. Uh, also, his ministry of sealing us for the, the day of redemption, his, he's sort of the stamp of, he's the seal that God has given to assure us of our inheritance. But there's also this, well, as a Christian life, what does this mean? We can grieve him. Um, I'm going to answer the question in three parts. And I found the Puritan John Owen, who wrote a lot on the Holy Spirit, very helpful stuff. His discussion on this verse is very helpful, and I'm going to basically depend heavily on that with some kind of adaptation and translation, but uh, and quotations. You are going to hear some 17th century language here. Um, but first, we'll ask, what does it mean to grieve the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to grieve the Spirit? One thing uh, just to be aware of is that language that describes God in creaturely ways, ways that aren't proper to God himself, aren't meant to literally describe God. So... Uh, what they're meant to do is draw analogies between God and the created order. So sometimes you see in like the Psalms that God is said to have hands and feet. And we know, based on other places in the Bible, God is spirit. He doesn't have a physical body. So what we interpret is this hands and foot language is meant to be analogous to his ways of, of operating. Um, so those are metaphors. And so it is with grief. Um, the human emotion of grief gets into some things that we can't say of God. Um, it's a state of undergoing change, and it's a state of being hurt. And thankfully, God is forever blessed and unchanging, and so nothing can change him, and nothing can truly hurt him. Um, however, there is something, there is a true analogy here. There's something that Paul is saying that's real, which is we can behave in ways toward him that are like when we grieve a human being in close relationship with us. And so uh, we are warned against behaving in a way that would induce grief, even though he in himself, he's not subject to being hurt by us, which we should be very thankful to God. He, he can't be changed or hurt. But at the same time, we are in a relationship with him, and we're told, hey, don't, 
behave in a grievous way toward him relationally. So second, why is the spirit singled out here? And this is where Owen I I find really helpful. I'm going to quote him. The spirit is the one who, quote, comes to us in the name with the love and upon the condescension, that's a lowering, of the whole blessed trinity. He is affected toward us as one that is loving, careful, tender, concerned in our good and well-doing. And therefore, upon our miscarriages, that's our, our missteps or our sins, he is said to be grieved. As a good friend of a kind and loving nature is apt to be on the miscarriage of him whom he doth affect. End quote. So to kind of translate this a little bit, um, think about human relationships and how in human relationships, our degree of intimacy of a relationship determines our potential to grieve and to offend. So if you have, if on the way here, I'm sure all of us were sinless and perfect uh, on our way, getting ready for church and on the road. Uh, but let's just say, for totally ira- no rational reason at all, when you're driving here, you had a run-in with a stranger on the road, and they uh, yelled at you, and they gave you an offensive hand gesture, and you saw that, and it didn't personally grieve you at all. You were just like, oh, okay. Uh, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's happened to you before. You've just been like, oh, okay. Didn't really bother you, okay? But um, think about your spouse, or your child. And that relationship, in, in certain key moments, in certain key situations, even a facial expression can devastate you. You are so much, the, the, the connection is so much more intimate that um, the potential for grief is so much higher. And so that's, that's what uh, Owen is pointing out about the spirit. He's the one who, kind of in the most immediate place in our souls, he's bringing all the love and kindness and, and relational closeness of God in home to us in our souls. And so because he, in one sense, he's the most intimate divine person with us, uh, then any neglect or rejection of his ministry has this grievous effect. So again, speaking analogically, not literally, the spirit is kind of where all the nerve endings are with God, so to speak, because that's like where he's closest into our, in our souls. And so that's why he says it's, it's the most grievous kind of focusing on the person of the Holy Spirit when we resist God. Which brings us to the third question, which is what kinds of behaviors do that and grieve the Holy Spirit? I would say, first of all, just to look to the broader context of Ephesians 4, starting in verse 25, Paul is giving kind of rapid fire ethical instruction. Don't do this, do this, uh, all upon the foundation of the gospel and who we are in Christ. But what sins does he talk about? Uh, Lying in verse 25, um, sinful anger. Seemingly uh, like anger that leads to bitterness in verse 26. Uh, stealing and kind of greedy freeloading kind of maybe implied in verse 28. Uh, corrupting talk. Uh, so talk that is uh, unedifying to others. It's maybe, maybe uh, uh, just impure in various ways. Corrupting in verse uh, 29. And then in 31, bitterness, anger, wrath, clamor, slander, and malice. So there's all these different sins that are, you know, some of these personal sins, some of them more relational toward others. Uh, they actually, I think they all really relate in some way to relationships with others. So in the immediate context, I would say, well, any of those things would be grievous to the Holy Spirit because he's working in us closely in our hearts to pull us in the opposite direction and uh, to show us, you know, the, the beauty of, of holiness and to entice us toward God's ways and, and to relating, to having a relationship with God uh, and enjoying Christ by means of, of holiness. 
But even more broadly, because of what we, again, because of what we know about the Spirit's ministry and his mode in, in what, what God's doing, the Spirit's role in what God's doing, uh, we can probably fill more in and say, the Spirit is the one in us moving us toward prayer and worship. He's the one by whom we worship God. We, we hear about like in Ephesians 2.18. Um, and so it would be grievous to, to him to resist those motions that he's drawing us toward the Lord in prayer and worship to resist those motions, to harden ourselves against them. I think if, if the, the Spirit is drawing us toward worship and we come to worship and we're, uh, we're distracted and we're insincere and all that, I would say that that's grievous to the Holy Spirit. That's working against the direction he's drawing us. Um, he's also in us to assure us of the Father's love as our adopted Father. So to refuse that assurance would grieve the Holy Spirit. The, the, one of the great reasons he's given to believers is, is so that in the depth of our heart, we would say, Abba, Father. We would know God as our Father. But when we, in um, unbelief, we resist that. And maybe in, in we, we have this sense of condemnation and this sense of, oh, no, God would never love me. Uh, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. He's given for the exact opposite reason. Or similarly, to, uh, to, to legalistically strive against the grace of Christ and to think that we, uh, you know, we maybe began by faith, but we're being perfected by our works, like in, in terms of Galatians. The Spirit, again, is given to us to show us Christ, to cause us to behold Christ and all his, uh, all his all-sufficient uh, merit for us. So any really resisting of the, the, the Spirit is meant to bring all of God's blessings home to us. So really any resistance against those things would work against what he's meaning to do. And I, I think would count under Ephesians 4.30 as grieving him. Any love of impurity in our hearts. Um, and boy... And, I, and it's easy to say, not, not being impure in our hearts, but what about when we love impurity, we laugh at sin sometimes, uh, or we just think casually about uh, manifestations of sin and evil that we see in other people's lives or in the world, um, or shrugging it off. Um, uh, it seems like that would be, again, the opposite of the direction that he's, he's meaning to draw us in our souls. So um, Owen says again, Quote, uh, he expects cheerful entertainment with us. That's that we would entertain him, that we would welcome him cheerfully. Both upon his own account, because he's the Holy Spirit, and as he is sent of the Father and the Son, commissioned with their love and grace to communicate them to our souls. This is that which is or ought to be of unspeakable esteem with believers. So he's saying he's the one sent uh, into our souls by the Father and the Son to communicate all the love and grace of God to us. We ought to find his ministry precious and we ought to value it and treasure and when we don't that is grieving the holy spirit that's working in the the opposite direction of of how he's leading us any follow-up questions from all that about grieving the spirit yeah christina would you say that like i'm a little bit stuck on the like we can't hurt the holy spirit yeah would you say would you say the same thing about anger that, uh, what does it say about anger? Anger, yeah. I would say anger is, um, and there's an analogy between God. I would say what God, the, the, God's perfection, his unchanging perfection is justice. And in certain contexts re- relative to his creation, his justice looks like anger. But, but we have to be very careful that we don't, work back up into God, uh, kind of human psychology, as though God feels something like we feel it. Because he do- like anger, our experience of anger is somewhat like God's, you know, his holy wrath, his holy justice, but it's somewhat different too. 
So we have to just be very careful. It's not change in God. Uh, it's not... Um, It's not any kind of imperfection, but it is a response of his perfect, unchanging justice to a particular kind of uh, situation in creation. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. And this is tough, this kind of idea of how we talk about God, you know, God's affections and things like this. The doctrine of impassibility is a fancy term. But um, we're kind of trying to balance between there is true analogy between us made in God's image and our creaturely experience and God, but there's also severe limitations and we, we, we need to be very careful. We don't just go, we don't reason down from us up to God in how we use language and how we think about God. Yeah. Give you a whole long, long, very good discussion. Yeah. Um, Can we think of grieve um, as like grievance as something that we do like analogous to sin against? Yes. Rather than the response of the spirit. That's yeah. So you're saying can we think of grieve more as a focus on what we're doing than the response? That's basically Owen's solution, as he says. It's not as though God undergoes a psychological state of grief of being changed and hurt, but it's that we are doing sort of like we're doing our dead level best to grieve. By our sin, we're doing what would make for grief, but thankfully, God Himself isn't undergoing quite what a human being would experience in grief. Yeah, yeah, it's it is more a description of our activity. Yeah, 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 yeah. Chinway. So, what I'm understanding is that you're saying emotions is a you're equating that to change, basically. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're. So if God is unchanging in the sense he doesn't experience emotions in the way that we do, you're saying. Mm-hmm. Yeah, God doesn't change, experience emotions. Emotions are a kind of change, yeah. This is a hard one, I know. We, we might have to talk about this another time. I, I'm not trying to... Do you have a question, Chinway? I'm not trying to shut you down. Yeah, yeah. Thought about that. I always just thought, thought God was joyful that one of us, you know, like if we're praying mm-hmm. to Him, oh, He rejoices that that oh, He's angered by our sin. Like mm-hmm. this is like a different way of thinking. I, I've always thought God has been changing His character, but mm-hmm. not 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 seeing emotion as a, ch- as a state of change. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I hear you. Yeah, it's true. It's a tricky conversation. Yeah, like uh, maybe it's helpful to think of God's response to like our sins. God has always known how he's going to react to the mm-hmm. sins that we commit. So, mm-hmm. like, if we grieve him, if we cause him to rejoice, if we make him sad, then mm-hmm. obviously we have to be careful with this, but mm-hmm. but it's like God is never surprised at his own reactions. And so, mm-hmm. in that sense, he doesn't change, but he does have responses to our actions and mm-hmm. our thoughts and our words which are emotional, but unlike us, he's never surprised by himself. He's always known how he's going to react eternally because he knows everything. We can be surprised at mm -hmm. others' actions and on our own. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, I appreciate that. So that God is, part of the difference is he's not surprised. He exists in eternity, so he's not even experiencing things in sort of a, like, He's not learning progressively as things go on like we are. And so, yeah, that's a part of it. Yeah. Yeah, Christina. Is there a connection between, like, the grieving of the Holy Spirit, like, 
the verb, the word, the description of that, uh-huh. and like the, the the godly sorrow that produces repentance versus the worldly sorrow that produces. Yeah, repentance. I don't know. Yeah, the terminology you're talking is that Second Corinthians. Uh, where is that worldly re- sorrow? I forgot what where that is. Yeah, two, I think, or I don't remember, but um, no, maybe in chapter one, or first Corinthians, my goodness. Anyway, somewhere in one of the Corinthian epistles, there's talk about worldly sorrow versus scholarly principles. I don't know the wording that's used versus grieve there in Ephesians 4.30, no. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the list of sins in Ephesians 4 yeah. seem to be about how we treat each other in the body. Yeah. And so to me, it seems like the grievous response would be related to how we are interfering with the work of the Spirit uniting us. Yeah, that's right. That's a good point that a lot of this grieving the Spirit stuff, if we're looking at just kind of the paragraph that it's in, in like I read from in Ephesians 4, what did he say in 4.3 is preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And then he lists all these sins that really are against each other. Um, and, and so I guess you could say one, one thing Paul means by grieve is to, uh, to rupture the unity the Spirit has given among us to uh, to form, to constitute. Like, he is our unity with one another in Christ. And so all these things are things that are sort of tearing, seeking to tear the fabric of that unity. Exactly. Working against the Spirit. Yeah. Um, let's go on to the next question, which uh, someone asked about dreams. So this is kind of in relation to some of the talk about miraculous things and um, and probably related to the issues of tongues and prophecy. But someone asked about dreams and I, uh, someone said that they read that dreams are frequently a particular influence in the conversion of Muslims. Um, and I've heard that too. There's this uh, guy named J.D. Greer who's a Southern Baptist. I don't know where he's at on continuation versus cessation, but he's, he's not a part of a uh, strongly continuationist tradition. He's a Southern Baptist. Um, he spent years doing missions in a Muslim country, and he wrote a book called Breaking the Islam Code. And there he points to three very frequent factors that play in when, in in people he's talked to uh, that play into people converting from Islam to Christianity. And the three that come up a lot are, this should be no surprise, exposure to the Bible, yeah. Um, the love of God's community, so good. John uh, 13, 34, 35, they'll know you're my disciples, but the love you have for one another, that really does have a powerful impact. And then the other one is dreams, or miraculous events more generally, but dreams often. He says, about half the time that in people he's talked to, there's somewhere involved in their story, there's a dream that they had. Uh, and they, they, they see it as God kind of helping move, move them toward Christ. Um, what do we make of this? What do we make of this? Well, always with these kinds of things, we have to just have this caveat of it's really difficult to assess the trustworthiness of people's interpretations of events. And I'm not saying we need to be suspicious and go like, oh, you're lying to me. But just uh, the interpretation of dreams is just an inherently subjective matter. And that's, that's okay. I mean, the Bible does have people having dreams and interpreting them, and they matter. So I'm not saying it's, it's without any value. I'm just saying um, somewhat the impact of this dream is going to depend on what the interpreter makes of it to a degree. But uh, having said that, I don't see, based on what we've seen and what we've said about uh, miraculous gifts, I don't see any reason to deny that God could do this miracle and might still be doing this miracle, giving certain people certain dreams uh, to stimulate them to consider Christ or to prepare them to hear the gospel. And I intentionally limited my kind of the language, the scope of what I'm saying the dream can do. I do think biblically it matters that the dream is not a, a, a substitute for evangelism. The dream isn't a substitute for hearing the word of Christ from the Bible, from the lips of, of Christians. 
And an example for that is um, Acts 10. It's amazing. So, you know, uh, the Gentile Cornelius receives an angelic vision and the angel appears. And it's amazing in, in Acts 10.3 is the angel appears to him and does not preach the gospel to him. What does the angel do? What does the angel tell Cornelius? Go find Peter, verse 5. Go find this guy, bring him. He will tell you what you need to hear. And that's what happens. Peter, and then Peter has his own vision to prepare him. Yeah, go talk to this guy, Cornelius. And, and he does. He comes and he preaches the gospel. And very clearly, this is sort of the Gentile Pentecost, right? The Spirit is poured out in a very manifest way to show that he's breaking into the kind of the Gentile world. And so I, I think we, I think it actually really matters biblically that we would we would say we do not expect dreams to substitute for the proclamation, the, the, the witness of the gospel through Christ's people. That seems to be the means that he has is, he is consistently chosen to use as you look throughout Acts and the New Testament. But the dream or the vision or whatever this, you know, Cornelius had could be useful for preparing the person for that. And I've heard stories like that on the mission field, whether in the, the Muslim world or otherwise. Some, someone had a dream about somebody that was going to come and you should listen to him. And they're like, that's weird. And then somebody comes, it's a missionary, you know, and and uh, I have no reason to say that that's spurious or that, that we should distrust those kinds of reports um, that, that, he could, that he could and does do that at times, yeah. Any thoughts or questions about that? Yeah, Paul. So if I was to go home tonight and have a dream and you were in it, uh-huh. uh, do, I need to have a, uh, do I need to have a Daniel-type person come and say, hey, I had a dream of Pastor Tim. Does this mean anything? Does a person that have a dream have to have a Daniel to come? and? Uh, yeah, does it have to be a Daniel that interprets it someone else? I don't. I mean, we do see that happen in, in Joseph and Daniel's lives. I don't think the, those narratives are, are necessarily providing a comprehensive pattern. And I, I would say, just looking at the way the Bible tells us the normal way Christians live their lives and are guided, we shouldn't put a lot of, of guidance weight on dreams. Um, so I wouldn't say, oh, I had a dream about um, suddenly, you know, we should, we should tear down our building and build a new one or something like that. You know, like, that would not be a legitimate reason to, to, to say, oh, God gave me a dream. Um, again, the Spirit is usually working through the ordinary but if, if a dream does, I don't know if a dream helps you to, if, I'm mostly talking about event, like non-believers. If a dream brings somebody to consider something that they hadn't considered before, who am I to say God couldn't do that? So I would say, yeah, let's be careful about putting weight on it, like for guidance. That doesn't seem to be a biblical direction. Yeah, Christina. I'll also just say the Lord works in mysterious ways. Yeah. Uh, there's, uh, like, I mean, we've, I've, we read and study a little bit on how the brain works on the active thinking versus mm-hmm. diffuse thinking and how sometimes, you know, like it's the things that you're chewing on even while you're sleeping that you're then yeah. figuring out based on something that was said to you beforehand or whatever else it is that yeah. can produce that kind of thing. But I would still like to, you know, it's like if anything points us to Christ, yeah. <laughs> you know, we could say that yeah. is worthy of God's praise and, and, and uh, praising God and, um, and thanking Him for that and, if, you know, if even, you know, it's like that gift of faith is something that like we can't discount yeah you know, that is from the spirit yeah yeah who knows the, the spiritual and and cognitive things happening right in dreaming the neurological but I just say if we, if we wake up wanting to believe god's word and obey then praise god you know what i mean like whatever if that's the outcome then yeah just test it by scripture basically yeah um the next question oh josh you had something yeah Can you just clarify that you had two points dreams could be useful for preparing and oh or uh 
what did I say? Preparing someone to hear the gospel or um, just stimulating them to consider Christ. Yeah. So I mean, maybe they've already heard the gospel, you know, and then they're like, ah, no, that's nonsense. And they have a dream, like, well, maybe it's right, you know, and okay, like maybe God used that. I don't know. But I would never say that it's going to just rely on that apart from the word and apart from evangelism. Moving on, um, would you cons- how would you cons- recommend responding to believers who think that speaking in tongues and prophecy are regular and repeated experiences in the Christian life? Um, that's good. And, and this could be so complicated relationally. And my, my approach would depend a lot on my relationship with a person. If it's just an acquaintance, I might really not address a topic. There may not be any need to or any opportunity to or any real credibility to. On the other hand, if it's someone very close to me, someone in my family, someone in our church that I really want to have agreement with, um, I'm more likely to engage and, and be proactive with, with them on that issue. How would I engage it? Well, first of all, I would recommend just with any, any issue you're dealing with, tons of patience and listening and honest discussion. So uh, Leviticus 19.17, you, you know, this is where the love your neighbor as yourself passage is in the Old Testament. But it says, you shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor. Part of how we love our neighbor is by just having an honest conversation, uh, just willing to hear, willing to discuss, willing to share uh, what you believe to be true. And James 3.17, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So the Bible points us again and again to honest, gracious, patient conversation as we sort things out uh, in a peaceable and reasonable manner. So listen to them and try to draw them out. Try to understand what they're thinking. Try to understand their experiences. Uh, The spirit is given to uh, preserve. We're supposed to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. So if we really care about the spirit, uh, we should care about uh, being peaceable. Um, and what I would try to do in that conversation is start by understanding why they believe what they believe and what their experiences have been. Um, because we all hold our beliefs for a lot of reasons, not just intellectual reasons. We hold our beliefs for social reasons, for emotional reasons, um, experiential. So I just try to be sympathetic with how do they get to where they are now? What would it cost them to give up this belief? That's just something to consider as well. Um, if, if somebody has built their lives on this, have for decades been claiming to have charismatic experiences, just consider it would be kind of a shameful thing for them to go back and say like, oh, I've been wrong for all these years. That would be a very hard thing for someone to do. I'm not saying they shouldn't change their mind. I'm not saying they can't. I'm just saying sympathize with what they're, you know, like, oh, that would be hard to change your mind in that that situation. But then uh, you should be trying to look to scripture together and, um, you know, there are some good books that discuss these issues that can help you see what the key passages are and kind of walk you through a little bit. Um, I should have brought them up here, but I really like the discussion in um, Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Holy Spirit. It's just the book about, generally about the Holy Spirit, but he has a good discussion. I can give you other recommendations if you want them. But uh, that can just walk you through some of the key texts and, and issues. And you could just look at the text, talk about these things. Uh, try to see if you can at least find consensus on what the real key issues are biblically. That's, that's you know, the conversation is going in a good direction. When you can put your finger on what are the interpretive issues, what are the, the biblical questions that, that really it will hinge on. Um, I mean, you also want to kind of gauge, are they, are they seeming to be committed to biblical authority uh, or are they not? I mean, if they're just someone who doesn't seem to care what the Bible says, they're just going to believe what they believe, you're probably not going to get far in this conversation anyway. Uh, what I wouldn't do is try to argue with their experiences. I wouldn't try to tell them, oh, no, no, that didn't happen to you. You're, especially to say, like, oh, you, 
you're deceiving yourself or, oh, that's that a demonic activity or something like that. We weren't there. We don't know what really happened. Um, we don't know their psychological state. We don't know their motives. Uh, that's really not our business to argue. I would say uh, just one thing to bring to the fore in this discussion is just that all of our experiences are interpreted. So all of us are interpreting what we think is happening to us based on what we even think is plausible, what could happen. And so um, the, the issue kind of is, is all going to end up hinging on what do we believe the Bible teaches about these things? Um, and then the, the, the interpretation of experience will just go downstream from that. So a lot of issues there, but any quite was that a hand up, Matt, or? Yeah. yeah Jeff. <laughs> I guess the question is, if you know, if you think this person or believe gives every reason to believe this person is a true believer who you know has respect for biblical authority and all these types of things, is there a moral ethical obligation to you know have this discussion? If mm-hmm. somebody you're you know, you're close to, like you're saying, you have the relational depth or whatever mm-hmm. to engage in this, is there an op- do we have like a moral obligation to do so, or can, you know we can just say? We're both believers. We have different. You know, yeah. You know, it's like yeah. It would be, you know, bat, like baptize, do pedo baptism. Yeah, yeah. Do we have an Do we have an obligation to engage yeah. this issue? For, I would misunderstand the Trinity. Or yeah. Or, I would say, yeah. Good question. It's going to vary. I would say we have an obligation to love and do good for people God's put in our lives, and to seek their best, right? And so there's tons of wisdom and judgment required with regard to how much damage is this doing to them? Because there are different kinds of beliefs and practices with regard to these issues. And some are some are a lot more ooh, d- dangerous spiritually than others. Um, what role does this play in their life, in their relationship with God? What actual chance do I have to potentially change their mind? If it's just going to, if we can just see it's, it's not going to go anywhere, um, I would say it's probably not the most helpful thing to them. Um, so just, I would say that we're under the general obligations of love to do good for them in Christ, to seek their best, and whatever, as we assess their lives, whatever um, that might require is just a matter of prayer and, and discernment, yeah. So maybe, maybe not. Just depends on factors like that. And then Matt, sorry, so unsatisfying. Uh, I mean, the general, I, you can take the, the subject of tongues and prophecy, that's a general good advice for any biblical differences or what doctrinal differences you have with somebody another church or whatever mm-hmm. you're talking with a fellow believer, the same same principle will occur. If you're supposed to be not trying to be quarrelsome. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I think yeah, to not be quarrelsome, exactly. Just be 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 kind and try to try to like the point is to do good for them, right? It's just always like we're trying to help someone believe what's true. It's healthy for their for their souls to know what's true and um and, and, and it, it is. It can be grievous when we see people the way they live their life being, um, you know, we can see maybe instability or uh, immaturity because of the way people are expecting God to communicate to them and so on and making, like, really irrational decisions. And it's like, ah, that can be that can be harmful to them. And there is a place for going, ah, in love, I, I just don't want you to live this way. I want you to have the stability of really knowing how, what it means to follow the Spirit uh, in, in, in um, listening to Scripture and things like that. So there's a lot more we could say. I'm going to have to move on to the, one last question. Um, but again, we can keep interacting about it, interact more. Um, if the Holy Spirit is an equal and unique member of the Trinity, why isn't his participation in the love and relationship within the Godhead mentioned anywhere in Jesus' high priestly prayer? The Holy Spirit, basically, the Holy Spirit's a person of the Trinity. Why doesn't 
his loving participation with the Father and the Son uh, come up in the high priestly prayer. Now, for some background, that's Jesus' prayer in John 17, uh, where he sanctifies himself like a priest, sanctifying an offering uh, before giving himself up on the cross. And he's praying to the Father in the presence of his disciples for the effects of his death. And I'll just have to say, this is a really good question. It got me thinking. I don't feel like I really totally got a satisfying answer. It's one of those, like, wow, it just really stimulates good thought. Um, but I'll give you some maybe um, some, some provisional and partial answers. Well, one thing that's interesting is you might think, based on all we've studied about the Spirit, and where, we, where if you're reading through John, you might hit John 17, you kind of would almost expect there to be talk of the Spirit at this point. Because this is like, um, there's tons of language about mutual indwelling and sharing of glory between the Father and the Son. So I'll just read part of it. I think this is verses 20 to 22. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. So it's almost like... (laughs) Almost like a definite, given what we know about the Trinity, it's like, Jesus, what about the Spirit? Like, why don't you mention the Holy Spirit? It's all this, they're in me, I'm in them, I'm in you, Father. It's like, are you forgetting anybody, Jesus? Like, that, that's almost, it's, it's I guess, um, understandable that we might wonder that. Um, I will give you a threefold imperfect provisional answer to that question. The first is, um, we do have broader reasons in the context of John, this part of John, and theological reasons for kind of implicitly including the Spirit in what Jesus is saying about the Father. So you remember back, and this is back what we saw in chapter 14, that when Jesus is talking about his and his Father indwelling the disciples, it's by means of the Comforter that he would send. So we saw this in John 14, uh, 17, and uh, through like 20, uh, 21, but essentially this idea that the Spirit of truth comes, he will dwell in you, and then he goes on to say like, my father and I will be in you so that later on when he comes to 17 and he talks about you know they're in me I'm in you I'm in them we already heard him saying well it's this the comforter indwells you in chapter 14 so this he's implicitly there in the in the context of John um and so that's one answer um the second answer which is kind of in tension with the first answer is we do have to be careful about shoehorning the Holy Spirit into father-son passages. Um, and we love the Trinity. We see, I hope we've seen it's very biblical doctrine. The Trinity is God. And, uh, uh, and we love the passages that teach the Trinity. But not every text is meant to spotlight every divine person. And so uh, while we can on, on one hand say, well, theologically, truly, the Spirit is involved in what Jesus is talking about in John 17. Yet he doesn't want to talk about the Holy Spirit in John 17. That's not what he's meaning to talk about. Um, theologian Fred Sanders, uh, he warns, when a passage of scripture names the Father and the Son but then fails to complete the triangle, we should neither pronounce it binitarian, that is, and that's a weird term, but it, it refers to concluding that it only teaches a two-person God. So we shouldn't say, oh, John 17, Jesus only thought that the Father and the Son are divine. We shouldn't conclude that, but Sanders says, neither cram the Holy Spirit into it. So we also shouldn't say, well, uh, uh, make sure we also talk about the Holy Spirit in John 17. Um, now, I'm not an expert in John 17. Greg would know a lot more about it than I do. <laughs> He's like the upper room discourse guy here. Uh, and he could tell you more probably about the contextual reasons, maybe, why the Spirit doesn't, uh, isn't mentioned in the prayer. 
but I would just say we should read the prayer sensitive to the choice, the editorial choice of Jesus and John, the writer, to not talk about the Holy Spirit. What is it about the Father and the Son relationship particularly that he's trying to highlight? So that's my second answer. Thirdly, uh, this kind of gets into the Spirit's mode of operation, his MO. Where is the Spirit? Where is the Spirit? And I think the answer we could give is the Spirit is invisible, but he's there. He is anointing Jesus, and it's in the Spirit that Jesus is praying this prayer. So way back in John 1, 32 to 33, when we're just being introduced to Jesus, John the Baptist testifies, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him, Jesus. And he says, He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. So the one who has been anointed with the Spirit is the one who gives the Spirit. That's one of the first things we learn about Jesus in John's Gospel in chapter 1. So I'd say we're supposed to read the whole book knowing that about Jesus. He is anointed with the Spirit in a unique way. And uh, moving on in chapter 7, verse 38, he speaks as, as the Spirit, as streams of water flowing from the hearts of the, whoever believes in me. Uh, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And John says he was talking about the Holy Spirit. Uh, he flows from the hearts of those who believe in Jesus because he first flows from Jesus himself, right? So it's like Jesus spills out the Holy Spirit and then it baptizes us in the Spirit and then the Spirit spills out from us. So when we come to this prayer, we implicitly know Jesus is praying in the Spirit. The Spirit is the one by whom Jesus is praying. It's anoint- Jesus is anointing with the Spirit that causes these beautiful words. John 17 is a beautiful prayer. These beautiful words of life celebrating divine fellowship and the disciples' participation in it. We can say it's, it's because of the Holy Spirit Jesus is even able to say these things. Lying, that's so much his MO. He's lying in the background, hidden but working, giving life in the hearts of God's people. So that's my answer to that question. So um, any questions or feedback on that one? Yeah, Paul. Was in the spirit when he was preaching when he mentioned the word us in verse 21 of 17 was he talking about the, the triune god uh-huh when he says that, that they all that they may all be one just as you father are in me and i in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me because yeah. he was in the spirit like you just said yeah that. is that too far of a reach to because us kind of just jumps out yeah i would say most immediately, he's talking about himself and the Father. But because, yeah, I mean, theologically, it's implied that the Spirit is part of that us. So it's, it's kind of a, an interplay between, you know, each text is not telling the whole story. We want to let each text say what it's saying. But also realize God is a trinity. And the Spirit is actually working in Jesus to, to, to talk to his Father this way. So I would say we can, we can extend it by implication to include the Spirit. I think grammatically, like the us is me and you, Father. Yeah. Good question. Yeah, Gary. You know, hearing this, if it just seems to me now, like for my own simple, I don't, I'm not a biblical scholar and things like this, but that prayer that you said, that's not the only place that something like that occurred. Because in Colossians, mm-hmm. it says, "And whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus." giving thanks through him to God the Father. Mm-hmm. Where is the Spirit, Holy Spirit in that? Mm-hmm. So I see, no, that's, that's right. to me, yeah. uh, scripturally or whatever, it's not uncommon. Is that Colossians 3.18 or something? Yeah, it's, it's 3.17. 3.17. Yeah, yeah. So here again, it's just 
we should know mm -hmm. that I, I don't know that they would have to say, oh, well, through the Spirit and me mm -hmm. to, you know, through the Spirit and Christ mm -hmm. to God the Father, but just yeah. as simplistically. So I don't think that this is any, at least for me, that yeah. cause any question or well, problem. Well, what, yeah, you see a lot of Father-Son language in the New Testament without a mention of Spirit. And again, because we see Father-Son Spirit the way that they're taught about, we, we can say the Spirit's involved, but the Spirit is more maybe working in us to look to the Father through the Son. Like, that's the kind of normal shape of it, Ephesians 2.18. We, we approach the Father through the Son in the Spirit. The Spirit's the one kind of subjectively moving in us that direction. So in terms of our, the object of our sight, so to speak, it's more to the Father through the Son, which is why you're going to see some of that Father-Son language. Yeah, like in Colossians 3.17. Yeah, good stuff to chew on. For the sake of time, we're going to close in prayer. But uh, conversation isn't over. I'm glad to interact uh, with, with any of these things or others. Thank you all for your participation in this series and your questions, those of you who sent them, and participation in class has been really good. Let's pray. God, we um, thank you for sharing your very life with us in Christ and the enjoyment of that life in the Spirit, which we enjoy now and look forward to only more and more fully through all eternity. We pray that we would be a people who so love the Spirit bringing the, your life into our souls that we do nothing to grieve him and frustrate that work, but that we would walk with him, that we would welcome and we would enjoy um, the Spirit uh, bringing about holiness and the love of Christ in us. Thank you for this series. We pray you bless it, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.